0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit SojournMontrose.org. Now, with that said, we're, we're going to jump right into Malachi. We've got we've got quite a bit of work to do today. Um, a, as you can tell, we're we're doing Malachi chapter by chapter, and, and whenever you do that, there's just kind of uh, a broad range of things that could be discussed, that probably should be discussed, that we have to uh, sort of laid to the side in order to see the sort of the bigger picture of of what's taking place. And so, um, what I want to do really quickly is, is just remind us why we're in Malachi. Uh, I think probably some of us listened as Cole read and went, "What? <laughs> what are we doing uh, in, in the Book of Malachi?" And uh, and so hopefully this will be uh, a bit helpful uh, in terms of helping us understand that. But. Uh, essentially what we saw last week, and, and, if, and we don't have time to go into all the depth and nuance of last week, but essentially what we saw um, is that the book of Malachi, right, uh, the, the words of the prophet Malachi to uh, the people of Israel um, are, are given to the people of Israel at this time for, for a specific reason in that um, the, the people of Israel had a very specific identity in that they belonged to To God, that the 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 people of Israel were in fact the people of God, and so um, where we find ourselves in their history is a time in which they have forgotten that very unique um, and very purposeful identity, and so we go to Malachi today in the hopes that as the new people of God through the body and blood of Jesus, um, that we would also be reminded who we are, and that in looking to the warnings of Malachi and to the, to the um, prophetic word of Malachi, um, that we would avoid Israel's mistakes as much as, as much as is possible, right? So that's what we're doing um, in Malachi, and we'll, we'll kind of jump in right now. I want to start, though, with this. Um, I, was, I was reading an article this week um, just broadly on entrepreneurship, um, giving sort of some, some helpful tips, and hints as, as to sort of ways that you can improve your journey in entrepreneurship. Um, and I, I want to read a, a quote from it. Um, this is what the article said. Every entrepreneur wants to maximize their productivity and achieve their goals. Each day becomes a white-knuckled grind for self-discipline and willpower. But there is a better way. And as I was reading that, look, I don't read a whole lot of articles on entrepreneurship. I you know, I'm not sort of in that realm necessarily, and yet uh, I was reading it because the article actually quotes a a, a good friend of mine. Um, but when I read that line, I thought to myself, you know, that's that's not just true of business or or entrepreneurship, right? That that statement or that collection of sentences really describes life in general, right? In that life in pursuit of whatever it is that we happen to be pursuing can feel like a white-knuckled grind for self-discipline and for willpower in order to achieve those things that we want to achieve. And yet the article comes in at the, at the very end of that quote and says, but there's a better way. And so what, what is that better way? Well, um, the The article goes on to quote uh, a pastor and professor by the name of Russell Minnick, who actually teaches at Houston Baptist University, um, and he says this, as far as the better way. The better way is to edit your personal narrative. Everyone has a story that we operate from, a script that shapes our view of the world and determines our behaviors. And what Dr. Minnick is saying is that we all have a dominant story about life and that it is that story that we believe which ultimately determines the story that we write. Does that make sense? So the story that we believe, that, that sort of foundation from which we operate, actually goes on to inform the story that we write with our lives. Here's a brief example, right? If, if the story that you believe, and this is a common American cultural story, I can be anything I want to be, the world is my oyster, then the story you might write could be entitled, Chasing My Dreams. If the story that you believe, which again is a common American cultural story, is success is everything, then the story you might write would be titled, Sacrificing Everything. The story that you believe matters, is the assertion that Dr. Minnick is making. The story that you believe matters. It's true for you today And what we're going to see in Malachi chapter 2 is that it was very much true for Israel as well. So let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as the people of God. We thank you, Lord, that through uh, the person and the work of your son Jesus, that we are united uh, with a bond that is unlike any other bond. And so, Lord, we, we come this morning and we ask, Lord, that your spirit would be here in our midst, Lord, that it would dwell among us, that it would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear the good news that is proclaimed to us from the book of Malachi. Lord, remind us what the, what the true and better story is, and may we be found to believe it by your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so again, kind of the thesis statement of, of this morning's sermon is the story that you believe matters. And so if that's the case, let's get into, let's dig into very briefly the story of Israel so that we can understand. Because what what takes place in Malachi is is a subtle and yet yet, uh, huge shift in terms of the story that they believe. That there's a huge shift in the story that Israel believes from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, or from really uh, the, their most recent history and what they are actually walking in in the time that Malachi is speaking to them. So here's their actual story, right? And again, we, And we did this at length last week, so I'm not going to spend too much time doing it. But essentially, right, the people of Israel have in fairly recent history been exiled under the reign and the rule of the Babylonian empire. Right? So they've been underneath the reign and the rule of the Babylonian Empire, and fairly recently, fairly recently, they have actually returned to, to their home. They've been returned to Jerusalem. They've been returned to um, their former home. And they've been returned with, with a specific purpose in mind, and that that God has essentially walked with them and said, You're being released from captivity, not just for the sake of being released, but because I want you to rebuild my temple. And there's a lot of weight behind that reality, but suffice it to say this. The temple of God was the dwelling place of God. That was where His presence actually resided. And so with the people of God in exile with no temple, it meant that they were devoid of the presence of God. Now they're being sent back to Israel in order to rebuild the temple, in order to bring back right the presence of God in their midst. And where they find themselves in Malachi now is kind of a place of, of stasis, where life is kind of back to normal. They've returned from Babylon, they've rebuilt the temple, and life is just kind of stasis, would be a good word for it. But what we see, if you read the, the couple of books before that, Haggai, Zechariah, other prophets, we see that really in the process of, of prophesying about the, the return of the people to their homeland, in the rebuilding of the temple, there's also sort of this glorious future that's painted for them. And the people of Israel experience some disillusionment in that, yes, the temple is rebuilt. Yes, we are no longer under the reign and rule of Babylon, but there's still so much that has yet to come to pass. Now, last week we talked about um, how, how the, the people of Israel in the book of Malachi are in a, in a significant transition. And that they began to drift from their understanding of who they were and whose they were. And that that began by forgetting, right? That, that, that God, in chapter 1, uh, verse 2, says to the people of Israel, I have loved you. He's trying to remind them of something. But what we see, right, is that they're drifting. while their drifting began with forgetting that God loved them, the, really the root of their drifting, the root of their misunderstanding of their identity was their drifting from a story to a different story that they began to believe. Here's how that happens. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 say this, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and i will curse your blessings indeed i have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart and here's what the lord is saying to the people of israel he's saying there's a distinct difference between listening to god and actually hearing god that there's a difference between listening and hearing and and the 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 clearest example that i could possibly put before you would be to just if you have children or if you've been around children or if you ever were a child, then you know they're really good at one of those two things. They're fairly good at listening. They're not always very good at hearing, right? What do we always say? It's one in one ear and out the other. Go clean your room. Go do this. Don't do that, right? And, of course, generally what happens next is that they do the opposite of what you just told them, right? They listen, but they don't hear. And that's what God is saying characterizes the nation of Israel here. That they listen with their ears, but they don't hear with their hearts. What does that mean? It means that there's a disconnect. That there's a story that God is trying to remind them of. That there's a foundation from which the people of Israel were always meant to live that they no longer hear. So where is that disconnect, right? Where did that happen? Where did they go from sort of this reality that was, that was great and glorious, this sort of future hope that was all built up into this rebuilding of the temple to now being in a place where it's just kind of, eh. I don't know if I believe that. The fullness of God's promises haven't come to pass, so I'm, I'm experiencing some discontent in this gap between what was promised and what is currently reality. Now, here's, here's the disconnect. In their release from captivity in Babylon, in their rebuilding of the temple, the story, the narrative that, that Israel was believing was this God is for us, right? in that they were experiencing great victory, victory that they shouldn't experience. This tiny, marginalized little nation all of a sudden is released from captivity under one of the greatest empires on the face of the earth in Babylon. They rebuild their temple, which is of immense significance culturally, spiritually to them, right? God is for us. But now that the temple is rebuilt and now that there is a sense of unmet expectation. The story that they are beginning to believe is God is against me or God is against us. That's what's taken place here. That's the shift that has taken place in Malachi that has led to this place that is so dark and so painful for the people of Israel, which the rest of chapter 2 will go on to describe. So here's my assertion. Every human story has one of two baseline narratives. And that is, either God is for me, or God is against me. Now, some of you would probably say that, that I don't believe in God, right? And so, you, your, your statement that you just made is automatically disqualified. And yet, I would... I would say that I still believe your baseline narrative is still one of two things, even if you, even if you don't believe the Bible. This is how I would re- rephrase it. If there was a God, based on what I read in the Bible, He is for me. That's one option. Or if there was a God, based on what I read in the Bible, He is against me, which is probably where the majority of those who don't believe the Bible is true would, would fall. Whichever narrative is yours will determine whether you listen with your ears or whether you hear with your heart. And that it was when Israel started believing that God was against them, that they stopped listening with their heart and they started just listening with their ears. The story that you believe matters. For the Israelites, their shift in narrative led them to this statement from God in that same verse, right? This is what God says. I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. What does that mean? Again, we don't have a whole lot of time to dive into the nuance, but but let's just say this. In the Old Testament, right? All those books written before Jesus came. In the Old Testament, um, there are many uh, sort of different laws and lists of things that when we do them, Blessing is incurred, and when we ignore them, curse is incurred. If you obey God, blessings. If you disobey, curse. Pretty simple, right? So, what is God saying here? When he says that even your blessings I will curse. I mean, to me, at first glance anyway, it came across as, you know, sort of inconsistent. In that, no, like, God, if you said that it's one way and now you're telling me that it's another, I don't, I don't think that's fair. And that you've said if we do these things, then blessings are to be incurred. So why, why would God curse their blessings? I think this, in this tiny little thing in this, in this tiny little book that probably often gets ignored is a, is a significant moment where we see the, the interplay, right, the interconnectedness between Old Testament, what we think is no longer relevant, with New Testament, what we think is only relevant in light of Jesus. We see a continuity in the teaching of the Old Testament and the teaching of the New Testament specifically in this statement from God. Because what God is actually saying is this, Even your obedience is cursed, right? So we saw in in chapter 1 that the priests are still bringing offerings. They're still doing what God has called them to do. Even that obedience has been cursed by God. Why? Because Israel's heart had drifted so far from God that even their obedience was to be rejected. Why would God do that? because God is first and foremost concerned with possessing our hearts rather than possessing our deeds. We say all the time that, that, that the reason that God loves us is not because of something that we can conjure up or manufacture, but instead it's precisely because He's promised that He will love us. As He says in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, that unconditional love. What's consistent here. That even though there are laws accompanied with this relationship that the people of Israel have with God, that God is more concerned about their hearts belonging to Him than their deeds sort of lining up to a list of things that they must do. And so he says, even your blessings will be cursed. So here's the application, right? Let's bring this to us. Many of us think that Christianity is a set of laws or rules that when followed lead to blessing and when ignored lead to cursing. And whether we whether we would agree to that statement, the fact of the matter is that many of us, even even those of us who are followers of Jesus, rescued and redeemed by his grace, functionally believe that still. We, We say things, maybe not out loud, but in our minds, like, if I do X not the drug X, if, if, I do, if I do blank, if I do blank, right, then God will bless me and accept me. If I, if I pray, God will bless me and accept me. If I show up to church a certain percentage of Sundays in a year, God will bless and accept me. If I strive to be a good person, God will bless and accept me. And what we see, even in this Old Testament passage, is that God wants our hearts before he wants our behavior. He wants our hearts before our behavior because when our behavior is empty and devoid of love for him, it is ultimately meaningless. You see, there's real danger. There's real danger when our story shifts, when we begin to believe that God is actually not for us, but that he is actually against us. here's what happens, right? Good gifts that are meant to draw us to God become shallow pleasures that lead us away from God. For example, marriage becomes something that we deserve or that we must have. Jobs, when they are given or taken away from us, become narrative shifters, either from God is for me to God is against me or vice versa. The narrative that Israel believed had changed from God is for me to God is against me. So what happens, right? This is what happens to Israel when that shift takes place. Verse 4, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Now again, tons of nuance. We don't have time to get to all of it. What I want to highlight is just this word that we see used fairly regularly, not only in this book, but all throughout the Bible, the word covenant. And I think one of the complaints that's sort of leveraged against Christianity and the Bible is that there's all this kind of archaic language, right? So it's like, is there not a better word than covenant that we could use to kind of understand what it is that God is saying to his people? And the fact of the matter is that, uh, unfortunately, there isn't. There's there's really no modern-day term that accurately portrays this idea of covenant. So I'm going to do my best just really briefly to kind of give give us a working definition so that we can move forward. A covenant is a unique blend of law and love. Here's here's how we see it in Malachi. In his love, he doesn't just call the people of Israel a people, he calls them my people. He loves them. He says, I have loved you. But we also see that there's law or stipulations that that come along with that love. And we see, of course, throughout Malachi chapter one and chapter two that many of those have been either outright discarded, or two, have lost their meaningfulness in that they're not being done from a posture of love. So in verse eight, when it says that Israel has turned aside from God's covenant, what The Bible is saying, and what God is saying, is that they have rejected both the love of God and the law of God, that both of those have been rejected, in that what the people of Israel believe now is that, God, you are not for me. You say you have loved me. How have you loved me? That's the question posed to God by Israel in chapter 1, verse 2, right? God says, I have loved you. They respond with, how have you loved me? I reject that. I don't believe that. And accordingly, I also reject that you require perfect offerings, that you require a heart that is open to hearing who you are and who we belong to. Now covenant, this idea of covenant, like I said earlier, is not just central to Malachi, but it's central to the Bible, right? And really, if we wanted to sum up kind of the covenant of God with his people, be it Israel or be it the church, it could be summed up in verse 5 when it says this, My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him, right? So the covenant of God was one of life and of peace, and it's not life and peace that's earned by our good deeds, but it's it's life and peace that God gives out of his free grace and generosity. God's covenant, ultimately, is a vision for human flourishing. So the love of God and the law of God are both given for the sake of human flourishing, that we would experience life and peace and that those would proceed from the hands of God Himself. Now, you may have agreed with 0% of the things that I've said so far, but I think, I think that we could all agree on this statement. All of us, whether we are Christian or not, desire to see humanity flourish. And most of our worldview, most of our worldview is informed by the way that we think that is most likely to happen. Let me give you an example. And this is why I think, I'm going to give you an extreme example so that I can, I can show that I really do think that this is true of, of every person. Right? Here's an extreme example. Adolf Hitler. He had a vision for human flourishing. Now, none of us, hopefully, none of us in this room would agree with his vision for human flourishing in terms of how that comes to pass, right? And that we do not believe human flourishing is brought about by the torture and the murder of six million people, right? You can nod yes on that one. I <laughs> um, Got off track there. Um, right? Here's another example, maybe more contemporary, maybe more, uh, more local. Whether you voted for or against the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, both sides of that want to see the same thing, in that they have a vision for human flourishing. Although they disagree on the way in which that comes to be, there's a desire for the flourishing of Houston, of our city. Here's another one whether we think that religious freedom and expression is important and necessary, or whether we think religion should be banned from the public sphere. Our aim and our vision is the flourishing of humanity. So now let me, let me pose to you what the Christian vision, what, what, what God's vision for the flourishing of humanity is. Looks like, right? As Christians, as beneficiaries of God's covenant, we believe that in the covenant of the Creator, we actually experience human flourishing as God designed it to take place. So two things are happening there. One, we're attributing creation and the design of all things to God, meaning that's probably a good source to go to when you want to know how it works. And then two, we're saying that He's actually made that, that path to human flourishing known to us in all of His Word from Genesis to Revelation. So in using a covenant, this is what God is saying. God is deeming that both love and law are necessary for human flourishing. Now here's where where I think maybe some of the disconnect happens for us, right? In that most of us, I think, would say uh, that we need one or the other, but not necessarily both, right? Right? So there's, there's one side that's kind of like, all, all you need is love, right? Ba, ba, da, da, da. All you need is love. If we could just, if we could only see past our differences and just love each other as we are, then people would flourish. And of course, then there's people on the other side of that spectrum. They're that like, if only we could follow the rules... If only we could follow the set rules and laws that were set before us, then people would flourish. We'd, we don't have to love each other. We just have to get along. But there's a problem with both of those. The problem with only love is that if, we, if, if we're only giving love, then there's no, there's no commitment. There's no shared commitment required. There's also a problem with law in that if it's only law, then there's no joy experienced. And if we don't have commitment and if we don't have joy, then we ultimately don't have what is peace and life and human flourishing. So here's what's happening in Malachi. When their hearts start to drift from the love and the law of God, they begin to write their own story of what human flourishing looks like. That's what they did. And now in Malachi, in in the next several verses, we'll see the results of that new path to human flourishing, what that actually leads to. This is what happens. Verse 10. Have we not all one father... Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And we're going to pause there for a minute. So here's what takes place, right? They write a new narrative. They reject both the love of God and the law of God. Now, um, long story short, right? God had told the people of Israel not to intermarry with people of different faith. Now, here's the thing, right? Um, that This idea of marrying the daughter of a foreign god in, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 11, sounds fairly innocuous, Right? And that like this kind of seems like maybe this is an area where God is overreaching. He's being unnecessarily demanding of his people. And yet, if we look underneath the surface, what we'll see is that it's <laughs> the issue is not so much about who they are marrying, but the issue is why they are marrying who they are marrying. You see, again, Israel's story used to be God was for me. Now it is God is against me. And in marrying the daughter of a foreign God, what Israel is saying is this, their God might be for me. God is not for me. Theirs might be. And so here's where I'm going to choose to go. The problem was not the merging of race. The problem was not who they were marrying. It was their allegiance and their worship. And look, they were doing this for the same reason that we do what we do. The story that they believed told them that their flourishing would be found somewhere else. They perceived there to be a gap between them and God, and they perceived that gap to be able to be filled with something other than God. Here's a a way that we can put it into, into picture, into focus for us, right? If the story we believe is that God is against us, we might look to something like our poverty, our lack of finance, perceived lack, at least in, in Western culture. We might look to that as evidence that God is against us. And so accordingly, what we will do, what we will then do is we will um, look to any and every way to acquire for us and for ourselves that which we believe, will bridge the gap from what we feel like should belong to us. You could do, you could do the same thing with, with marriage, with relationship. You say, look, my view of human flourishing does not involve or, or does not have any room or place where I am single. And since my worldview, my, my view of human flourishing doesn't involve or encompass that, then I'm going to do whatever it takes in order to acquire from myself this kind of relationship. And ultimately what happens is that relationship or money or status or whatever it might be, fill in the blank, rather than being a good gift that God gives, turns into something that we worship instead of God. And that never, ever ends well. Here's what happens next to the people of Israel and Malachi. Malachi. Verse 14. But you say, Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So here's what happens. The people of Israel chase after this hope that by marrying the daughters of foreign gods, that they will somehow be fulfilled, that the perceived lack of goodness, the perceived lack of fulfillment that they find in being the people of God, that somehow they will experience that in this place their marriages. And yet, just a few verses later, what do we see that's happening? They're getting divorced, right? It's like, okay, you know, this is kind of an ad nauseum conversation for Christians, right? Where we talk about how bad divorce is or whatever, and that's not necessarily what I'm getting at. Why are they divorcing? Verse 14 says that they have been faithless. That ultimately that their divorcing proceeds from a lack of affection for the wife of their youth. Now, the Bible gives biblical grounds for, for getting divorced. Suffice it to say that I don't like you today as much as I did yesterday is not one of them. But what's really happening? Again, the people of Israel have begun to believe a different story. So look, this is what's happened. They've made another shift. They thought their hope was going to be in this marriage. They found out that that, that their hope was not met, not fulfilled in that marriage. And so instead, now they're getting divorced. Why? Because what they're saying to themselves is this, my life would flourish if I was divorced. They're continuing to chase this view, this vision of human flourishing, and they are finding it lacking in every sense of the word. And what happens? Right? Two things get destroyed. One, the family, right, tells us that God, that God brought people together, that God brings people together in marriage in order that godly offspring might proceed from that, that they might know and acknowledge the love and the law of God. So that's ruined. And then two, the person himself or herself is ruined in that God says... For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence. Now, what does that mean? Garment, sub that word out for flesh. What he's saying is, you do your own self real physical harm when you divorce your wife. The person who does this does violence to himself. The Lord is trying to remind them that his story is the true and better story, the one from which real life and real flourishing takes place. So here's what's happened thus far, and we're, we're winding down. So what's happened thus far in Malachi is this. Chapter one, they forget the love of God. Then suddenly they begin to, to, to doubt the love of God. Then they begin to openly question the love of God to God himself. And then in chapter two, And in chapter 2, their hearts begin to drift from God. Their hearts not only begin to drift, but then they become openly unfaithful to God, so much so that they actually begin chasing other gods. Gods that only let them down. Does that sound familiar? I don't know about you, but that could probably sum up my daily life experience. And that morning by morning, moment by moment, by the power of the Spirit and the good word of God, I'm reminded that God is for me. And yet I operate throughout my daily life as though God is against me. And so I feel the need to hoard things that I think will make me happy, that I think will fulfill me, that I believe will lead to my flourishing. I'm not satisfied in the relationship that's given to me with God by the, the power of Jesus through the work of the Spirit. So instead, I look to meet that gap with relationship with others. And what that means is I begin to value their approval so much so that I'm willing to compromise on what I already know to be true. And we could go on and on, example after example, of how I forget the love of God, of how I begin to doubt the love of God, of how I begin to openly question the love of God, of how I be- become openly and unapologetically unfaithful to God, and how all of that ultimately leads me to a place of emptiness. It's a daily occurrence for me. Maybe you feel the same. So, what's the solution? if you were paying attention, we, we actually skipped two verses and, because they're um, actually really helpful right now. We skipped verse 3, and we skipped verse 13, and, and this is what they say. Verse 3 says this, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Some of you are like, yeah, I remember that from when we read it. And then verse 13 says this, And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And here's what God is saying, right? The refuse, what is left over from your polluted and worthless offering, I'm going to spread that on your face. I rebuke that. I reject your offering. I do not accept it. And you and I, again, we stand at a very privileged place in history where we get to look back not, on, not only on everything that Jesus said and did, but everything that he has revealed himself to be in the fullness of his word, the Bible. And what we can know from that is this, that Jesus, in coming and in being Like his imperfect people, in taking upon himself flesh, he did two things. He shed his own tears on the altar that had been prepared for him. On the altar of the cross, the offering that Jesus offered was rejected. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The perfect offering of Jesus on the altar of the cross was rejected. the offspring that would be rebuked. Jesus is that offspring. He's the offspring of the people of Israel. He's the son of David. And he is rebuked and rejected so that our imperfect offerings would be accepted. Jesus was rebuked and proverbially, dung was spread on his face in that he accepted and bore upon himself the accusation and the disdain and the disgust both of man and of God, so that we could be accepted and given the righteous robes of the king. This is the story that we must believe if we are to flourish, not only as individuals, not only as families, not only as a church family, but as a society and as humanity. And that story is titled Redemption because in the cross, we see God's clearest most pure and most perfect telling that he is for us and not against us. The heart of Israel drifted. Today, Malachi told us why. The story that they believed shifted from God is for us to God is against us. The story that you believe matters. So what story do you believe? Do you believe that God is for you? Do you believe that God is against you? If you believe the Bible, and if you believe Jesus is who he says he is, then God can only and ever be for you. If we want God to protect us from the similar situation that Israel is experiencing in Malachi, where they drift from their understanding of who they are and whose they are. We don't need him to protect our strategy. We don't need him to protect our, our hipness or the quality of our music. We need him to guard our story. We need him to guard the story that we believe in our heart of hearts. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, um, Lord, that we can come To your word, and we can find rescue and redemption proclaimed on every single page. God, that in the middle of despair and in the middle of darkness and in the middle of an unfaithful, ungodly, unworthy nation, you speak these words. I have loved you. And Lord, we thank you that the rebuke that was due to your offspring that we should have received was instead given to Jesus. That the dung that was meant to be spread on our faces, Lord, was spread on Jesus' face. That the offering that Jesus brought was rejected so that our imperfect offerings could be accepted. And Lord, as we come to your table and we eat the bread that represents Jesus' body and we drink of the cup, that represents Jesus' blood, that we would be visibly, tangibly, spiritually reminded of the substitutionary death and atonement that Jesus came to bring, and may we worship him for.